you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. Often joke, if you like to act like you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're welcome to go with them. They could certainly use the adult help. There are two things that kind of have been all over me this morning. One of them is just the need for the church to be praying for Nepal. About five years ago, I had the chance to go to Nepal. And if you study missiology and understand that the gospel actually didn't get into Nepal at all until the mid-1950s. They were, um, they had a king basically blocked any outside influence So there was no gospel invasion of Nepal until the 1950s. There are a number of major missions organizations that flooded that country in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, There are missionaries all over that country now. Um, But if you've watched the statistics of Christians in that country, they're growing exponentially. And so as you watch the news and, and you're aware of what's going on in that country, I want you to know just a couple of short things. I want you to know, one, that God is epically in control. When things like that happen, we need to just understand that God is epically in control. But the second thing I want you to know is having walked a lot of that country, which I lost 12 pounds doing, probably need to do that again sometime, walking all over that country, you find temples of idolatry all over it. See, that country is majority Hindu. The interesting thing about the statistics of it is over 50% of the Hindus also claim to be Buddhist. So when you claim a couple of the world religions, you're going to, you know, get somewhere, maybe. But the fascinating thing, if you dig into it, is, is that those religions will actually believe and hold on to this idea that their gods will hold them, protect them, and keep them safe. So when these kind of cataclysmic events happen, when major earthquakes hit between Polkara and Kathmandu, sending avalanches throughout the countries, know that God is at work. Know that major temples though beautiful, were destroyed. And that's going to cause these people to think. I have a couple of friends who are missionaries there. I don't know if you know anyone, but please be praying for them because those folks are going into 22-hour days, just loving people and dealing with some of the destruction. So I just really, I want to ask us as a church, if we can just take a minute as a whole congregation and just pray for Nepal together. And pray for the missionaries who are there, who are pouring out their lives, who are giving up everything to love these people. If you just join with me in praying for Nepal. Great God in heaven, there is nowhere on our planet where your presence isn't completely pervasive. If we ascend to the heights, it says in the Psalms, (laughs) Father, the heights of our world are in Nepal. 26,000 foot mile, or 26,000 feet mountains all over that country. God, it's the heights of our world. And Father, your name will be glorified there. Father, an awful thing for humanity has happened there. And we want to beg, Father, that you would be with those who are still suffering and struggling. We want to pray, God, that you would intervene in situations where people might still be covered with rubble. 
Father, that you would give missionaries incredible insights into how to find people and meet their needs. And Father, we pray for the church, the extension of your body that exists there, that you would use them to show and to declare who you are, that the name of your son Jesus wouldn't be just accepted as another God on a list of gods, but would be understood for who he really is, the redemption of all man. Father, we lift up our missionary friends. Specifically, I want to pray for my brother Britton. Father, as he works long hours and toils in Kathmandu, Father, to love people, give them strength, give them courage, give them energy, and let them be about your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are continuing to work through a series called The Table. And in fact, there's a way in which we're going to wrap it up a little bit this morning. Because as Jesus calls his disciples together, at the end of basically three years of training them, they, they meet in an upper room in Jerusalem, and he begins to teach them. For probably about three hours, he pours into them truth after truth after truth. He, he's preparing them. He's discipling these guys. And this morning, I, I just wanted to take a moment my, in preparation to read through these chapters and it's fascinating as Jesus is kind of walking through this last minute discipleship just to read through it all in one fell swoop. And I encourage you to do it. But just to see everything that Jesus wants these guys to know. Because as he's preparing his disciples for him to leave them, he's preparing these disciples for this mission he's going to give them. It's also Jesus preparing you. For the world that you're going to walk in. It's Jesus preparing you for the mission that he's given you to carry his name into the world. And so when you come into the end of 13, when he says, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you will love one another. We see Jesus giving these guys to each other. In a way that the church is supposed to give ourselves to one another. And we're supposed to love each other in a sacrificial way as he's pouring into these guys and laying down unconditional truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He understood that apologetics would come around these guys, that they'd be opposed. And he wanted to saturate them in the truth. And he wanted them to know that they wouldn't be alone. That as they walked, that the Holy Spirit would become with them. And our brother Shane last week came up and, and walked us through the reality of the Holy Spirit. That it's easy for some of us to sit where we sit and think, man, my life would be so much easier if Jesus was just standing next to me, if he was walking me through this. And yet Jesus says very clearly, it's better for you if I go and I'll send the Holy Spirit. So churches, we're gathered this morning, no, that God is giving you his best and providing for you through Jesus Christ and giving you his spirit to walk with you. And as Jesus prepares these disciples, he wants them to know what they're going to walk into. He very clearly tells them, the world will hate you if you cling to me. So we need to understand that. 
We need to appreciate, and he teaches these guys, you will not be accepted more than I was. So as we walk into the world, we have to appreciate that if we're going to claim truth, we're going to claim exclusive truth, we're going to claim a morality, the world's not going to like you for it. And so we got to walk with that intention. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Just that tension is of a believer that we walk in where we, we hold truth, we have a standard, and yet we love people ferociously. See, so often we're tempted as the church to do one or the other. I'm going to have a standard. It's this way. If it's not this way, you can't come in. If it's not this way, you can't look like us. We have a standard, but we don't love ferociously. Or we love ferociously in such a way that says, we'll accept anything. We'll accept everything. We have no standards. We just want you to feel loved. And friends, you just got to know, according to the scriptures, that neither of those are where Jesus calls us to be. He calls us to be a people who cling to truth and who love ferociously, who represent his standard and who he is. And the fact that he says no to people, that there are things we all want, we all desire, that we can't have. We unpacked that a little bit a couple weeks ago, that sin is an enticement. doesn't matter what entices you, what sin you struggle with. We all struggle with it. We don't get to pick and choose. God has a standard. And he calls us to hold his standard and to love people ferociously will be hated in this world, but we're carried along. It's the sweetness of the abide passage in John 15, the reality that we must stay connected to him. We must be pursuing him in a personal and intimate way for our lives to bear fruit. Stay connected to Jesus. And this morning as we turn into John 16, verse 25 to 33, He's going to bring his teaching to a close. Having spent hours with these guys, he's bringing his teaching to a close. And remember this as we walk into this. As he brings his teaching to a close, he's moving ever closer to the cross. Because as he ends this teaching, he's going to say a prayer, which would probably take a couple of minutes, and walk across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, where not long after which Judas will betray him with a kiss and literally, quite literally, the beatings will commence. And so understand as Jesus is pouring into these guys' lives the tension that's on him and how he's trying to prepare these guys and as he's trying to prepare you for the life that you've been given in Christ Jesus. John sixteen twenty five. Says this, I've said these things to you in a figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus is explaining to these guys there, there's been a way in which I've talked to you, I've taught you, I've used a lot of metaphors, I've used a lot of parables. It's not been so clear. You're going to hold on to some of those things, you'll get more out of it, but the day is coming where I'm about to get really clear, and in just a moment he will, because the hour is coming. And 26, in that day you will ask in my name. What does that day look like? Because we see this phrase, keeping in mind that Jesus knows even within the hours he'll be arrested. 
In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. And one of the interesting things as we walk through this passage is to realize how many times Jesus is talking about the completion of his work in past tense as if it's already happened, even though it's hours away. There's a time coming when you won't have to ask me to talk to my father on your behalf. Church, why is that? Because when Jesus dies on the cross, access to the father through the name of the son is openly available to you. Because of the work at Christ on the cross, which forgives all of your sins, so that when you walk into the throne room of God, he doesn't see you and your shortcomings and in your failures and in the list of sins you think you have. He sees his son. Ephesians 3.12 says, In him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now what Paul is trying to push to you in this moment is this reality that in him and through faith in him, talking about Jesus, we approach God with freedom and confidence. Do you pray that way? Because of the work of Christ, because of the sufficient work at the cross, you can literally walk into his throne room and have open access to the king of kings. And you can walk in with confidence. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have access to the throne of God because of the work of the Son. And as the son is preparing himself for the cross, he's preparing these guys to know, guys, you're going to fall short. You're going to struggle. You're going to wonder where I'm at in the midst of this. And you can go directly to the father. You can go directly to my daddy and talk to him about everything because of what I'm about to do for you. He keeps talking about it in past tense, even though he's about to walk into it. And then Jesus... And John 16, 28 makes the most definitive statement he makes about his mission, about what he's about, and it clarifies a lot of things for these disciples. This is what he says. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to my Father. Something about this clarifies a lot to these disciples. We'll walk into that in a moment, but for just a moment, let's unpack what Jesus says. Basically, he's defining to these guys, I've come from my father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going back to my father. He's telling him his whole purpose. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He came from the Father. If you walk through John 1 or Colossians 1, we see that the Son was pre-existent in eternity. 
He comes from the Father that he left eternity, put skin on, and joined our party. The message says the Son moved into our neighborhood. He became like us. He incarnated himself. That was his purpose. I came from the Father and I've come into the world. If you open up Philippians 2, by the way, we put page numbers up here because flipping your Bible is a really good idea. Bring yours, that's awesome. If you don't have one, we put a red one in front of you. We'd love for you to take it. Now this is my pastoral side note. If you happen to have like eight of the red ones at home, bring them back. We're running out. But it's helpful for you to know that where we're going here is in the Bible, not Ben's opinion. And I want, we put pages up so it'll be really easy for you to flip back and forth. Because in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, Paul describes Christ this way. He says, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That Jesus came from God and he humbled himself. He went through the humiliation of putting on flesh to serve us. That comma is so important. It's oh so important. That comma represents everything he does for us on this earth. That if he came from the Father and he came into the world, then how he spent his three years in the world is so crucial. Because he revealed the kingdom of God and he revealed his father. And he goes to the cross and we're about to walk into that. So that we'll have open access to the father and open access to the kingdom of God through him. But he says, and now I'm leaving the world. And what a washed up pretty way to say it. See, Jesus, I think, is still shielding his disciples from all he's about to walk into. These guys, I don't think we're ready for it. I'm about to leave the world, Jesus says. I'm about to literally be crucified. We began in John 13. Jesus says this in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, there's an argument that exists that Jesus was brutalized and he was victimized and he wasn't in control and bad things happened to him. And Jesus wants to make it so clear to you that he was in control, he was in charge, he walked to the cross purposefully, intentionally, and he thought of all of us, the church, while he did it. I'm leaving the world Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into, and I'm going to my Father. I will return back to him. He forecasts his resurrection and his ascension for these guys. Clearly seen in John 20 and in Acts 1. And just for a moment, I want you to flip to Acts 1 because I think it's going to be helpful for us. Page 909 if you've got a Red Pew Bible. If you don't, the people next to you have a race and they're going to win because they have a page number. This is what Dr. Luke writes in Acts 1. Recording the words of Jesus. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you saw him go into the heaven. See, Jesus forecast that I came from the Father. I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world, and I'm going back to my Father. He leaves in a way that makes it really pretty clear. I don't know about you. I haven't seen too many guys floating to the sky. It it was pretty captivating, The disciples got stuck. They're just sitting there looking up going, whoa. I had a seminary professor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, incredible man, used to say, that's the painting he wants to see. Eleven guys just looking dumbfounded, staring at the sky because of the essence of what it meant. See, Jesus gives his mission statement in John 16, 28. That he came from the Father into the world and he was leaving the world to go back to his Father. And in Acts 1-8, he gives you a mission statement. He gives you the same purpose that he came with. See, we came into the world because our mom and dad brought us in. But God knit you together in your mother's womb. Every aspect of your being, he wove into you purposefully and intentionally. Your strengths and your weaknesses. Every aspect of who you are. He purposely built you. And he gave you talents. And he gave you skills. And he gave you abilities. And he sowed in you hopes and dreams and aspirations. And why did he do it? Do you think he wanted you to be successful? Do you think he wanted you to be wealthy? Why did he do it? I like when people talk back. For his glory. See, he had a purpose. In Acts 1.8, he gives it to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, the Holy Spirit throughout the whole meeting at the table keeps getting forecasted to these guys. Guys, you're not going to be alone. My Spirit's going to come with you. He's going to invade you. and You're going to have power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, as Jesus is building these guys up, he's building them up for a mission and a purpose. And as you read these words, and Jesus has the chance to disciple you, and Luke has the chance to disciple you with his words. Hear the vision and the mission statement that gets imparted to you. See, Jesus didn't die on a cross to make us better people. And Jesus didn't die on a cross so that we'd be happier. Jesus died on a cross so we'd be forgiven for our sins so that he could use us to reveal the Father, to reveal his glory So that other people would see a manifold witness of God. So other people would be able to experience the incarnation. 
that the disciples got to see. See, your calling and my calling is to put on the flesh of Christ. See, we can get intimidated looking at this book and think, man, if I submit myself to Jesus Christ, will I have to give it all up and move to Africa? And to be really fair with you, for some of you, the answer might be yes. It's altogether possible. See, God throughout the history has been scattering his people. We'll talk about it in a moment. But for some of you, God really did weave in you a heart and a desire to do what you're doing. For some of you, God may have very well gifted you to do what you're doing, but just to do it for his glory. Let me be frank with you. The world needs a whole lot fewer people like me who sit in my office in a church building, and it needs a whole lot more people who will proclaim his name with boldness and some ferocity and boldly proclaim what he did at the cross and what it meant to them. See, that's what the world needs. Let me give you this as an illustration. From time to time, I end up on an airplane, as most of us do. Let me balance your experience and my experience. Some of you, when sitting next to somebody in the airplane, will sit next to somebody chatty. And sometimes you're that chatty person. And somewhere in the conversation, it comes up, what do you do for a living? See, you get to answer that question with honesty. People look at me weird. You want a conversation killer? Next time you're in a plane, you're like, I'm a pastor of a church. You, the plane might as well go down. Conversation's over. It doesn't matter what that person does for a living. It's a sad part of our society, but it's true. The whole entirety of scriptures, you have to appreciate that one of the grand things that Jesus did moving from where the where Israel had been to where he wanted the church to be as he moved it from a movement of professionals to a movement of lay people, to a movement of people who were empowered by the Holy Spirit carrying out the mission of God. That's what he was calling his disciples to do. Go forth and carry on this mission. He poured into these guys They saw clearly, and he made it clear to them that he had a vision and a mission. And in this statement in John 16, 28, he lays it out for them. And in Acts 1, 8, he lays it out for us. So we are now left to wrestle with the reality, are we owning what he's given us? Because, friends, it will not be simple. It will not be easy. As previously put before you, you will utterly be rejected by the world. And let's see how else he ends this with his disciples. 1629, his disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. I love the disciples. I look forward to hanging out with these guys. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answers them, do you now believe? 
he gives him a hypothetical question. He gives him kind of an ironic question. Do you now believe? You want an interesting statement. Try to figure out when these guys became believers in Jesus. Uh, The world changes at Pentecost. There's no question about that. But something happens when these guys, when he starts, Jesus speaks clearly to them in such a way that he has to put a couple of more sentences before them that's going to comfort them. And we get those in 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. He said that about six times during this meal. It Indeed, it has come. It has. He's about to pray and they're about to leave. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. See, it's in fulfillment of Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And the reality is when the heat started getting turned up on these guys, to the hills they ran. In fact, according to the scriptures, uh, Peter stayed just long enough to deny him. Uh, John wandered in and out, actually did watch his Savior be crucified. But you see this pattern in the church. We often get scattered when the heat turns up. But church, I want you to know that God does that purposefully too. The book of Acts chapter 8 verse 4. It's actually become one of my favorite verses. See in Acts chapter 8, Stephen has already been martyred. The church gathers, persecution turns up. Someday, someday, and sadly it'll probably be in a lot of our lifetimes, this might happen to us. When the heat of persecution might crank up to low and medium and medium high and it'll get hot. But in Acts 8, what the church does is unique because as the heat gets turned up, and the people start to scatter. It says in Acts 8, 4, and those who scattered went about preaching the word. Well, that's strange. Heat turns up. People spread out. You know what happens? Church blows up. See, God uses this kind of thing for his glory. It goes back to the discussion in Nepal. God is epically in control. He absolutely and utterly understands what the world is doing to his body. It's none of it's catching him off guard. And he's using all of it. He's going to use every drop of it to build his kingdom for his glory. We used to use that as a theme verse for our college ministry. At the end of the summer, and everyone was scattered. Guys, it's great to be scattered, but what are you taking back? And we have this mentality as a church. When I lived in Memphis, I did a, a, a wedding at a church, and they had this really cool sign. As you pulled into the parking lot, it said, welcome to the church. As you left, the back of the sign said, now entering the mission field. Church, as we gather this morning, recognize that about, depending on where you sit on connection hour, 11 or 12, 10, we're going to scatter back out into the world. And some of you are going to drive over to Fargo and some of you out to Holly and wherever it is we're going to go, we're going to go back to our homes And the challenge of the church for us is have we built you up enough to scatter you? Because it's going to happen. We scatter on our own now. Someday it won't be our choosing. 
And as Jesus pours into these guys, he wants them to understand that as they walk away from him, they will not be alone for the Father is with them. And I can't help but tell you how much those words had to mean to these guys. See, two weeks ago when we started talking about John writing this, we acknowledged the fact that by the time John writes this gospel, the other 10 disciples have all been killed. And they weren't together when it happened. So when the heat got turned up for these guys and John gets thrown in a pot of boiling oil, he had to feel alone. When Bartholomew refused to be crucified, so they filleted him first, then crucified him when he could no longer resist it, he was all alone. You had to think these guys had to hold on to this word. This is what they heard over and over and over as they endured it. I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And churches, you walk into the world and you endure persecution and you wonder if you can handle it. Hear the words of our Savior. For I am not alone. The Father is with me. For I am not alone. The Father is with me. Jesus poured into these guys and prepared them for everything that they would endure. And in verse 33, he ends their meeting by saying, I have said these things to you. Basically, I want to close up. This is his conclusion to a three-hour meeting in a sentence. I have said all of these things to you. My purpose in discipling you for these last three hours, ultimately as a church, his purpose in discipling us for the last 13 weeks using his words, is that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus says, all these things I've said to you, everything I've prepared you for, is so that you will know in me you will have peace. Working through this passage, I kind of came to my own mathematical equation. Jesus equals peace. The world equals tribulation. Jesus greater than the world. He wants these guys to understand that as they endure it, there's something better. He wants them to understand the promises. He wants them to understand their hope. And he wants them to understand the reality that in in him there is peace. But watch that. In him is peace. It's not your situations. It's not your circumstances. It's not your friend list or who follows you on Twitter. It's not the job you have or the relationship you're in or the relationship you left or the relationship you hope to be in. It's not whether your kids obey or disobey. It's not whether they wear their shirts frontwards or backwards or sideways. In him, you will have peace. See, Jesus is pretty clear that the world's heat is turning up. That there's going to be tribulation everywhere around you. Don't look for peace in everything else. Find it in him alone. Find it in Jesus He will be our peace. That's all we've got is him. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. 
Jesus uses this phrase, by the way, twice in the New Testament. Naturally, I'll take you to the other occurrence. Mark 6.50. If you're familiar with the gospel of Mark, you know chapter 6. You know towards the end of chapter 6, you know the disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and the waves are getting high. And the thunder is clapping, and the lightning is showing, and their world feels tossed and turned. And they look across the water in the midst of what had to be really uneasy, and they see somebody standing there, and it's not Kids Club. (laughs) They see somebody standing there, and it's Jesus. And as they make eye contact with him in the middle of a bouncy, wavy sea, Jesus says to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus says to these guys in a storm in the Sea of Galilee, despite how Heavy the waves are, despite how much water is coming on board, despite how convinced you are that you can't do it anymore, despite how convinced you are that the boat's going down and everyone with it, he connects with them and says, it's me. Look at me. Take heart. See, he is our peace. It's just him. Jesus didn't say, have courage, you will overcome the world. Have courage, you will be strong. You can overcome it. You can do it. There's not a feel-good aspect to this. There's not a self-improvement aspect at all in the midst of this passage. Have courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus is greater than the world. And he is our peace. As he set these guys up, and he gave them his mission, and he gave them their mission, and his last instructive discipleship moments with these guys, he wanted them to know that the turbulation's coming. Turbulation, did I make up a word? Turbulence and tribulation? I made up a word. Somebody should write that down and submit it to a dictionary, so I'll be better next year. When the, when the waves pick up and your boat's shaking because it's going to happen. And if we took a poll, I bet all of us feel it in some part of our life or another. And we ask and we beg and we pray that the situation would change. And friends, I got to tell you, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But look at Jesus. Take heart. He has overcome the world As these guys prepared for all that they had before him, he wanted it to be clear. He was their peace. Starting next week, we'll spend the next three weeks digging into his prayer. The high priestly prayer given in John 17 as he prays for himself, his disciples, and he even prays for you. I'm looking forward to walking into those three weeks. Let's pray together. Father, in this world, we will have trouble. In this world, we'll have tribulation. They will not treat us better than they treated you. 
So, Father, my great hope in this is that you'd give us the ability to look up and see you. Father, there's some in this room where the waves are so high. The boat is so shaking and full of water. I pray, Father, that in those people, you'd, you'd place your hand on their chin and raise their chin up to your gaze. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Father, there's nothing that anyone in this room can, has, or will experience that is greater than the grace that's given to us at the cross. There's nothing anyone in this room has, can, or will experience that is outside the territory of your sovereign hand. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful that faithfully and willingly you went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. We're thankful that you discipled your disciples so well and these words were recorded to us that as we walk out the mission we've been given, we can cling to these same words, that we're not alone and that you are our peace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.